Well, Brother Terry contacted me kind of late Friday and told me that Brother Scott was going to be out of town and was not going to be able to speak tonight. And lo and behold, their Brother Scott is back there. Is, am I correct? Am I seeing him back there? I'm wearing my glasses tonight. Brother, can I just go ahead and pin this on you and, and give the people what they want? I mean, can we do that? You're going to stay there. You're, you're really going to leave me hanging. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I know that y'all were anticipating hearing Brother Scott speak on a Christian's uh, view of war, and yet here we are. My condolences to you. Um, I'm sorry. Um, You've already had one dose of me this summer, and here you're getting another one. Uh, Brother Terry must really think you have strong constitutions, uh, but um, it could be worse. I mean, you could be me. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. I've had to listen to every sermon I've ever preached. I mean, just, just let that sink in for a minute. And I've forced myself to stay awake through the vast majority of them. <laughs> and so, I mean, you could be me or, and have heard me every single time I've ever spoken. Um, but it is, it's a joy to be with you tonight. I really appreciate the opportunity, even though I know um, you are anticipating um, a far more uh, qualified speaker and uh, a topic that I'm sure is of interest to you all. But I'm sure Brother Scott's going to be locked and loaded to give that one uh, to you at another time. Uh, but I sure appreciate the opportunity to come and be with you tonight. Uh, for a few moments tonight, I hope that we're going to be dealing with uh, a topic. In fact, I feel pretty confident that we're dealing with a topic tonight uh, that though it may not fit in real tight with, with your theme that you've been working with this summer, I feel like it's something that uh, every Christian, if we are honest, uh, what we're going to be dealing with tonight will resonate with us at some time or another during the course of our Christian walk. And so I hope what we're going to be discussing for a few minutes tonight together will be beneficial uh, to us all. But before we get into a particular question uh, that one of the great characters of the Bible asked on one occasion, I just want us to think for a second about um, Scripture's use of questions. I don't know if you've ever done a, a personal Bible study and just gone through the Bible and just looked at all the different questions that are in the Bible. Hundreds and hundreds of questions asked by everyone from God to the devil and various and sundry characters in between. And it's a really great study because uh, it's very interesting at times to examine not just the question that is being asked, but to examine the person that is asking the question and then try to kind of get into the person's mind and ask yourself, why did they ask this question? We don't always ask a question because we need the answer to what we're asking, do we? Do you ever ask your children questions and you know the answer, but you ask it anyway? In fact, the very fact that we said tonight that in Scripture we have God asking questions, well, God is omniscient. God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer, yet questions are asked by God in Scripture. So that tells us that sometimes there are other motivations for why we ask a question. The very first question that God asked in Scripture, I know you remember, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, he asked, Adam and Eve, where are you? 
Did God ask that question because he had no idea where they were? Did he walk in the garden in the cool of the day that evening and look around and say, where in the world are my, the two crowns of my creation? They're, they're normally right here waiting on me. What's, what's up? What's going on? And he calls out because he has no, he knew exactly where they were. But he wanted to give them an opportunity to vouch for their recent behavior. He gave them an opportunity to be accountable. He gave them an opportunity to take ownership. And we all know what happened with Adam and Eve. They took no responsibility. They tried to pass the buck for what they did. Uh, They tried to blame someone else for the poor decision that they made. Have you ever wondered how different things may have turned out had Adam and Eve taken complete ownership? For their sin, when God asked them those two questions, the first one, where are you? And the second one, who told you you're naked? Have you been eating from the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? Have you ever wondered if they had taken complete ownership and showed regret, remorse, and penitence? In, In Scripture, do you see any remorse or penitence in the responses that they give to the questions that God asks? They may have shown it, but it's not recorded for us in Scripture. I've often wondered, moms... Would the pain in childbirth have been lessened just a touch if, if Eve had just come clean, owned up to what she did? Guys, have you ever wondered if there would have been a few less thorns and briars in the ground had Adam owned up to what he did? You know, sometimes as parents, we ask our kids questions, we know the answer, but we're giving them an opportunity to be accountable. Have you ever gone lighter on the punishment for what you had planned for your children because they were honest and upfront? And have you ever been harder on your kids when you gave them the opportunity to fess up, but they didn't tell the truth? I kind of have a feeling God probably operates in a similar fashion in that way. In fact, we see it often in Scripture when the reaction is what it should be. It seems that, I remember in one case, in Ahab's case, as wicked of a man as he was, At one point in his life, he showed great humility, and the Lord lightened a bit the consequences for his sin. We've got all kinds of questions in Scripture. I often wonder in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 25, when Elisha asks his servant, where'd you go, Gehazi? And you remember what Gehazi's answer was. Your servant didn't go anywhere. I've often wondered if Gehazi would have just come clean. If he would have just said, Elisha, covetousness got the best of me. I, I, just, I just did not think it was right for Naaman to leave, having been cured of his, his leprosy, and we not get any of that stuff that he brought to give us. And I apologize. I should not have coveted like I did. I went out there and made up a story, and here it is. I'll go run, run him down and give it back. I wonder maybe if that leprosy that had been on Naaman would not have gone on Gehazi. Maybe there would have been a little lighter punishment for Gehazi if he had just answered the question truthfully. You know, Elisha asked the question because he knew the answer, and he's given Gehazi an opportunity to come clean. One of the saddest questions in scriptures found in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 50. It's when Judas has come out with the mob 
to betray our Lord. And Jesus, though he knew what Judas was going to do, he knew exactly why Judas was there, yet Jesus asks him this question, friend, why have you come? Did Jesus ask the question because he didn't know why? Wasn't it just hours before in the upper room when he said to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me? And, and when it came to Judas's turn, he said, is it I, Lord? And he said, yeah, it is. What you're going to do, do quickly. The Lord knew what Judas was up to. He knew why he was there. Sometimes I feel like, you know, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 tells us that with every temptation, God provides a way of escape. And I've often wondered that Jesus was providing out of his love and compassion and mercy, even though Judas was a thief and a betrayer. And, but he's providing Judas one more opportunity. Judas, come to yourself. Think about what you're doing. Why have you come? Judas, take just a minute and think about it. You know I don't deserve what you're doing. You, knew, you know that what you're doing is wrong. You don't have to go through with it. You've not gone to, past the point of no return. Judas, why have you come? Think about it before you take another step. And so we have these powerful questions that we see often in Scripture. Uh, the one that I want us to consider for a few moments tonight comes from well, a character in the Bible that receives the greatest compliment found in Scripture. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus says concerning John the baptizer, of those that are born of women, there is none greater than John. Man, can you get a better compliment than that? Of those, of those born of women, that covers just about everybody, doesn't it? There's been none greater than John. What a man John was. One of the most incredible men that we read about in Scripture. He's the man who bridged the gap between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's the man that Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 prophesied would be the one 700 years before he was born that would pave the way for the arrival of the Messiah. In Matthew's account, when he introduces us to John in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 3, he quotes from Isaiah 40 and verse 3 before talking further about him, saying this is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. Jesus, in talking about John to the crowd, on the occasion that he paid him that great compliment, a couple of passages before that, he said this is the one that Malachi was talking about, that we read in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. The one who would prepare the way for me. What a man John was. He, he's one of the last people that the inspired writers were talking about before the pages of inspiration closed in the old law, the old covenant. He's one of the first individuals that the inspired writers were talking about when we opened up the pages of the new covenant. Bridges the gap, paves the way for the Lord. What a man John was. And then we read about some of the things that John preached and did and the sacrifices that he made. And so with that in mind, one of the most perplexing questions in Scripture is recorded for us in two places, Matthew chapter 11 and Luke chapter 7. And John sends two of his disciples to Jesus while he's in prison with this question, and I know you know it, I know you've read it, you've probably pondered it and studied it before. Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Knowing what we know about John... Why did he ask a question like that? 
I don't think it's because he didn't know the answer. I think there's some other reasons why John asked that question, and I think once we start digging in, and now I'm not going to try to put thoughts into John's mind. There's going to be a, a little bit of speculation involved in what we're going to talk about tonight. But because we know that John, though he was, as Jesus said, there's been none greater that's ever lived, John was still human, and he was dealing with human frailties, and he was dealing with human limitations, and he was dealing with human struggles. And so I think when we dig into the motivation for why John asked that question, I think we'll, we'll learn some things about ourselves that are of value. But before we get into that, I want us to think just for a second, John, you're asking this question about the one that you've spent years paving the way for, the one that it was prophesied 700 years ago that, that you would know and serve and yet you're asking, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Isn't John the one who we read about in John chapter 1 and verse 29 when he's walking with a couple of his disciples and he passes uh, Jesus? He looks to him and says to his disciples, behold, y'all say it with me, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. You remember when Jesus comes to be baptized by John? John says to Jesus, I should be baptized by you, but you're coming to me? This is the one who, you remember in John chapter 3, beginning around in verse 22, when some of his disciples and uh, some of the Jews are uh, having this argument about purification, and then a discussion comes about the baptizing that's going on on the other side of the Jordan by Jesus' disciples, and they're saying to John, John, all these people keep going after, after him, and and John says, listen, you need to understand, he must increase, and I must decrease. And John gives this beautiful description of Jesus. He exalts him as the, as the deified one. He exalts him as the son of God. He exalts him as everything that he's been telling everybody that he's going to be. He gives this beautiful description of Jesus, who he is, where he came from. And he's saying this with all confidence. And yet here he is in prison. He's calling the Lamb of God the one that takes away the sins of the world. He's, when he baptized him, witnessed the Spirit descending in bodily form like a dove, hears the voice of the Father from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet he's going to ask a question, are you the coming one or should we look for another? John, you know better. He knew better. He knew the answer. There was something else involved in why he asked the question. Before we dig into that a little bit more, I want us to consider for a second the immediate circumstances that led to the disciples going to visit John while he was in prison, the things that they had just witnessed that came up in the conversation that they were having with John. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and let's look beginning in verse 11. And this is going to give us the immediate context of the visit to John in prison by the disciples and the question that he sends two of them back to Jesus with. Beginning in verse 11, Luke chapter 7. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. 
And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. So they have just witnessed this incredible miracle of our Savior stopping a funeral procession and raising the man who was on the way to his burial out of his coffin from the dead. And so the disciples of John have have witnessed with their eyes this miracle. They've witnessed the response of the crowd. They're seeing all these people believe. They're seeing Jesus do things that have never been done. So they go back and tell John about these things. And then John's response to that John's response to eyewitness testimony of the Lord stopping a funeral procession so he could raise the man from the dead who was being carted to his own funeral, his response is, I need you two to go back to Jesus and ask him, are you the coming one or should we look for another? If at any time John should have asked that question or could have asked that question, it seems this is the least likely, isn't it? I mean, his faith should have been at its zenith. That should have been the last question on his mind. There's overwhelming evidence. Isn't it interesting that one other thing about John that we didn't mention just a moment ago, John knew Jesus before he knew him. And you're probably saying, Jason, have you lost your marbles? What do you mean he knew him before he knew him? Well, you remember on the occasion when Mary was carrying the Messiah and she goes to see Elizabeth who is carrying John and she says, I think it's Luke 1 and verse 44, when, when the sound of your voice hit my ears, the, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. I mean, John knew Jesus before he knew him. And now here he is going with the Lord to this, with this question. Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Now let's take just a moment, as we kind of close our thoughts here tonight, and put ourselves in John's shoes. If you've never done that, I want to ask you to go through that mental exercise just for a few moments with me tonight. Put yourself in John's shoes. You have sacrificed everything. You have spent years in the wilderness eating locusts, and wild honey, wearing camel's hair. You have been preaching. You have been serving. You have been sacrificing. You have been doing everything that the prophets prophesied you would do to the letter. And what do you have to show for it at this point in time? You are rotting away in Herod's filthy prison cell simply because you told him what he needed to hear 
And so you're in this dirty, dungy prison cell. You can only imagine the treatment that he's receiving because he's there because the king and the king's wife want him there. So you can imagine the kind of rations he's receiving, the kind of treatment that he's receiving. What has he done but do everything that God ever wanted him to do? Put yourself in John's shoes. And now these disciples come back to see you, to tell you about all the things that Jesus is doing. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to the place where after John was in prison that Jesus went to go visit him. Nobody's, nobody's turning. <laughs> it's not in there, is it? Maybe Jesus did. But the Holy Spirit does not record for us that Jesus went to go visit John while he was in prison. Apparently, at times at least, he could receive visitors because that's what led to the question. He had disciples who came to visit him in prison. If you're John and you're hearing about all these things that the Lord is doing, let's just speculate for a moment. I know we can't know this for sure. Let's speculate for a moment that Jesus has not. The Holy Spirit is silent on the matter that Jesus has not come to visit. Yet some of his disciples have found the time. How are you feeling? Just from a human perspective, put yourself in that dungeon. Put yourself in those conditions. Imagine yourself dealing with that scenario and that situation. And the one that you have sacrificed your life for, let's just speculate, he's not even come to see you. And so you're wondering if he even remembers that you exist. And so I can imagine if I'm John, so he's raising people from the dead, healing every manner of sickness, because you remember, we'll get to Jesus' answer in a minute, but part of his answer, you remember, to the two disciples to go back and tell John, go back and tell him everything that you've seen and heard. The blind have received their sight, the deaf they're hearing, Lepers have been cleansed. The lame can walk again. The gospel is preached to the poor. And so John is hearing about all these things that Jesus is doing for everybody under the sun. What about me, Lord? If I'm John, this is what I'm asking. Because I'm a human and I can see myself getting a little cranky if I'm in John's shoes about right now. What about me, Lord? All I have, what did that boy that you raised out of that coffin do for you? What service did he provide for you? Now, John might be a much greater man than, than me, and, and those thoughts aren't going through his head, but I think the reason that he asked this question is telling me that those kinds of thoughts are going through his head. Because he knew the answer. But he sent disciples with the question, Have you ever assessed the kind of preacher John was? If you've not, I'll just give you the nutshell. He was a fire and brimstone preacher. He was a fire and brimstone preacher. Do you remember when folks would come out to see him? Do you know what his introductory remark was according to Luke's account? Brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. That was his introductory remarks. It wasn't, good to see you, glad you're here, thank you for coming, fill out a visitor's card before you leave the wilderness this morning. 
No, you're a bunch of snakes. That was his opening remarks. Concerning the one that he was paving the way for, in Luke's account of his preaching, he said that the one that is coming is going to have his axe in his hand and the blade is going to be laid at the root of the tree. And he's going to start cutting down every tree that's not bringing forth good fruit and he's going to cast it in the fire. That was the kind of preaching that John did. It's interesting, Brother Wayne Jackson of the Christian Courier wrote an article on this question that John asked. And he said it may be a better rendering of the question is pertaining to the original language, are you the coming one or should we look for one of a different sort? And it may be that John had this idea in his mind of the one that he was paving the way for being one that is ready to drop the hammer down on these sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked Jews. That finally these crooked Pharisees who are robbing people blind in the temple, are going to get what's coming to them. He is telling these people, you need to bear fruit worthy of repentance because I'm telling you right now, the one that's coming after me has the axe at the root of the tree. When he comes, the axe is not in the shed, resting on the hook. And he's going to come and chit-chat with you for a little while and then, you know, stroll out to the shed and get the axe and start cleaning house. When he comes, John says, the axe is going to be in his hand and it's going to be at the root of the tree ready to go to town. So this is maybe what John is visualizing and he hears that Jesus is doing nothing but showing compassion and mercy to these people who he thought were finally going to get what's coming to them. Especially Herod. And so John is rotting away in Herod's prison. Jesus is allowing him to stay on the throne. And Jesus continues to show grace and mercy to all these people. And John might be having a little bit of a Jonah moment. We can't know for sure. Again, remember, I said there's going to be a little bit of speculation here tonight. But just to explore why John would ask a question like this, because I'm telling you, he knew the answer. So there had to be another reason. And so it may be that John is... Are you the coming one, or are you the good cop and the bad cops coming later? Should we look for one of another sort? It may be that John's having a Moses moment. You remember one of the things that John said over and over again in his preaching is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not 40 to 50 years in the distant future. It is at hand. It's almost here. And maybe John is seeing the handwriting on the wall. Jesus is not coming for me. He's not going to break me out of jail. I'm going to wind up dying in here. And I'm right here on the cusp of the arrival of the kingdom. And you're telling me I'm not going to get to go in? Was Moses just fine with wandering around with those Israelites for 40 years and getting to the bank of the Jordan River and the Lord's ready to hand deliver the promised land to the people and and good luck to you guys. Was Moses okay with that? Did Moses not beg and plead the Lord, please let me lead the people in? And so maybe John is thinking to himself, the kingdom of heaven is at hand I've been waiting 30 plus years for this. The nation's been waiting centuries for this. We're right here. John 
did not know this for sure, but the fact of the matter was the, the kingdom's arrival was only a few months away. And John said, I've done all this to pave the way for the coming one who would establish the kingdom. I don't know what kind of kingdom John had in mind. He might have had the earthly kingdom in mind like the rest of his fellow Jews had. He might have had a better understanding of the kingdom. But either way, he knew the kingdom was going to be awesome. And I can imagine John wanted to be a part of it. John wanted some of that action. And so John is thinking, are you serious? Jesus is going to let me die in this prison at the bank of the Jordan, spiritually speaking, and I'm not going to get to go in and be a part of the kingdom. And so maybe the reason John sends the disciples with the question is, Lord, please just remember I'm here. You've been so busy doing stuff for everybody else. Please don't forget that I'm... Commentators argue about how long John had been in prison. Some say it had been multiple months. Some say it could have been close to a year by this point. It wasn't just a few days. And so maybe John is thinking, I'll just, I'll ask this question as a way of just reminding the Lord of where I am. And maybe while he's doing all these wonderful things for everybody else, he'll take a moment to break me free so that I can be with him when the kingdom comes. But the end of the Lord's compliment in Matthew 11, 11 lets us know that the Lord had no, no plan of letting John go free. Of those born of woman, there's been none greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? That it's because John was not going to get to be a part of the earthly kingdom. He was not going to live long enough to see the ushering in of the kingdom on earth. So the Lord had no intention of freeing him. So John's dealing with this crisis of faith. So my question to you, I can't see what time it is back there. Can brother three after? All right. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been dealing with such overwhelming grief, such incredible sorrow, such immense angst? Have you been dealing with crushed expectations, bitter disappointment? And you start asking, Lord, are, are you the one that I need to dedicate my life to and put my trust in and put my faith in and put my hope in? Or do I need to find someone or something else? And it may be that there are people here tonight who you've been there and you've, you've made it through the storm. Maybe you're going through it right now. But I wager to say that every single one of us at some point, if it's not already happened, if it's not happening right now, it's going to happen in the future. Because if it could happen to John, of those born of woman, there's been none greater than it's going to happen to us. And so the question is, what is our reaction going to be? What is our response going to be? Because it's interesting, the last little part of Jesus' answer to the question to the two disciples. He said, you go back and you tell John what you've seen and, seen and heard. Tell him about all the miracles. Tell him about the gospel being preached to the poor. And then he said, and then you take him back this message. Blessed is he who is not offended by me. I think Jesus knew why John asked the question. 
John was at a low point in his spiritual walk, understandably so. Had, if anybody's going to have a low point, John had every right to be in one. In the situation and circumstance and condition he was in, I think Jesus understood it, but Jesus said to John, John, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. John, blessed are those who, when they don't understand, when they feel like life has just turned their world upside down, nothing has gone their way, everything has been so difficult, beyond comprehension. Jesus says it's in that point, trust. Trust in me. Blessed are those who are not offended because of me. We'll have one final thought for our invitation, but thank you so much for your kind attention this evening.